Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello, and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me two practitioners who work to bring together people from across the aisle to generate creative solutions to common problems. Welcome, Rob, and welcome, Monica. Thank you. Nice to be here. Happy to be here as well. Fabulous. So Rob Fersh and Monica Glauke are both affiliated with the Convergence Center for Policy Resolution in the US, an NGO that convenes individuals and organizations with different views to build trust, identify solutions, and form alliances for action on critical national issues. Rob is the founder of the organization and current senior advisor, while Monica is the director of Convergence's Initiative on Digital Disinformation. And I'm very excited to have them both with me today, especially because we're coming from three different time zones, so we're very much taking this internationally. Okay, so I'll, I'll turn the first question to Rob as the founder, because he can give us a bit of insight into the organization. Rob. What led to your founding convergence and what does it actually do in practical terms? Thanks, Laura, and thank you for the opportunity to be on. Very nice to be with you and to work with Monica on this. The idea of convergence actually got started in the late 1990s, and we only gave birth to convergence in 2009 as a full-fledged independent organization. I had a long history of working on national policy issues in Washington, D.C., And over time, I became somewhat frustrated that people had different points of view, had no place to sit down and hear each other out and potentially find answers that were better than anyone brought to the table. I'd worked for three congressional committees, always on a bipartisan basis. And I was always struck by the fact that underneath it all, people of great decency probably had a lot in common, but the way we operate our dialogues and discussions on big policy issues tend to be more debates rather than a search for common ground amongst us. So starting in the late 90s and incubating over a decade or so, I and others put together this idea that we'd create an organization that would address issues of great national consequence by bringing together people who had the collective knowledge, experience, and influence, that if they could reach agreement on ideas, they could then work together to implement those ideas. And so there's been, it's been quite a run over the last 13, 14 years now. And Convergence has worked on a wide variety of issues in the past that we can talk about. And certainly we can talk about Monica's wonderful new project on digital disinformation. And Monica, what drew you to work with Convergence? Sure. And I'll just mention that my birth coincided with the ideation of Convergence in the 1990s. Fun fact, Lorme, I would say that I was compelled by one, the stories of impact. So for example, one of the projects Convergence tackled previously was on education. It spun off into its own nonprofit on learner-centered education. An ongoing project we have on gun violence and suicide prevention brought together gun control activists with Second Amendment activists, with people working in civil society on um, suicide in the LGBTQ plus community. And that's a coalition of people that never come together before, not in a meaningful way. Another example, healthcare, and how some of our recommendations made their way into the Affordable Care Act. So those stories of impact were very impressive to me. And then the second reason was my curiosity about the consensus building methodology and its underlying evidence base. So since we live in such an interconnected society and all the problems that we grapple with are so interrelated, they affect very diverse groups of people with different interests. So consensus building has the potential to increase the quality of solutions to these problems because they're co-creative 
one based on a comprehensive analysis of the problem each party has a different perspective so you have so many more angles incorporated than if it was just a select few developing the solution on their own so this makes the solutions higher quality and more innovative but also this approach seeks to transform what are typically adversarial and very divisive interactions into a cooperative search for information and solutions by plugging in a variety of people into the decision-making process. In a way, you can even if you can't address some of the disparities of power outside, at least at this forum, all perspectives can be heard. So this kind of flavor of co-creation and collective action in the sense that like convergence doesn't advocate for solutions, but we usher people along this co-creation process was also very compelling. I really like this framing of co-creation, and it sounds like there's a lot of empathetic listening and what have you involved as well. So I think there's something certainly a lot of mediators can relate to and probably negotiators as well. It sounds like a fantastic uh, thing that you do. And so, Rob, what was the first time you realised this kind of dialogue-driven model could actually work? Were there any early successes or failures that led you to believe in the project? There weren't any really clear indicators. Some people had been working in this arena before I got into it more at the local level or community level. And I think we were we broke new ground in terms of using this kind of best practices of the conflict transformation field in larger areas of public policy. So it was a little bit of a jump off a cliff. And Monica mentioned one of our huge early successes, which is on K through 12 education. But before I went off to start Convergence as an independent organization, I was working out of the International Conflict Resolution Group, Search for Common Ground. We did two very successful projects, which kind of amazed me. One was on healthcare in the United States. And it's actually that project that many people would say created the framework and the ground and created the ability for the Affordable Care Act to pass. People from across the healthcare spectrum in the United States who had been at war with each other for years, many of them had fought over the Bill Clinton plan for healthcare, came together and they actually designed the architecture of the Affordable Care Act. And many people would say, it wouldn't exist, but for the relationships we built amongst pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, insurers, consumers, and so on. So that was a proof, an early proof of concept, one of the most dramatic. And then there was another project on US Muslim relations that had very high level participation. Sorry to see that Madeleine Albright has recently passed away, but she was at our table and a fabulous participant. We had former members of Congress of both parties. We had Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, the American Petroleum Institute and Southern Baptist Convention. And they came together to deal with what should the United States do now to respond to what's going on in the Muslim world in the wake of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we put together a series of ideas that the it turned out that the Obama administration was elected shortly thereafter and implemented them. So quickly before Convergence was started as an independent organization, we had two very strong proofs of concept. And now since then, we've done another 10 or 12 projects in which Always, there have been ample areas of common ground that have been found. In many cases, in most cases, reports that actually reflected a consensus. And as Monica indicated, a lot of strong impacts for most of the projects in terms of these people not even working together. But I think the other thing to mention that's really important is that in many cases, relationships of former adversaries have been transformed. They now talk to each other differently. Many are working together differently. They even take back into their own communities and their own organizations another mindset about how to solve problems besides just the win-lose adversarial mindset that so many people hold when they have opinions on big issues. It sounds like it's very interesting for sure, Rob. And I'm going to ask Monica about the disinformation project in just a moment. 
But I'm wondering if you could shine a bit more light into how this magic actually happens. You've talked about these really effective results and co-creation and bringing people together, but what does that actually look like within the project? Probably Rob, I think, will go with this one. Sure. Let me give you the a thumbnail sketch and both Monica and I certainly can fill in. The basic notion is first to identify an issue that needs to be resolved and then to frame it up in a way that's inviting to people, all different points of view. Because if you already framed it up in a way that's loaded to one side, then people won't come to the table. So identify an issue that people really need to resolve. Identify people who would need to talk to each other, who would need to talk to whom in order to move the dial forward if they reached agreement. So you identify what we call stakeholders. And in this case, it could be people of great influence and power brokers, but we've also found it very important to have what we call people with lived experience and people more at the grassroots level to have their voice in the leaven, the national experts. And you assemble that table and throughout the process it's about building trust that people can listen to each other. It's operating from what I call a collaborative mindset, which is a belief that no one person or group has all the answers. And as Monica laid out beautifully, that when you bring together all different people with different perspectives from different sectors, you get a much more panoramic view of the issues. You get a chance to explore them more deeply. You have a chance to generate probably more holistic, systemic kinds of answers. And they're likely to be more enduring because you have widespread buy-in. So then you engage in a process that it's hard to explain in just a couple of minutes of identifying maybe some basic principles that will guide the stakeholders that they agree on. Like we had a project on economic mobility where we had the US Chamber of Commerce, the business groups and labor unions and advocacy groups. And while they couldn't agree on a national minimum wage figure, everyone at the table agreed that if you worked full time, this is in the United States, but hopefully applies elsewhere, you shouldn't live in poverty. So that, gave, that was a big trust building notion that, yeah, we agree on that. And now what are the solutions we can all agree to get there? So that's the process. You identify certain principles you agree on. You begin with skillful facilitation to identify where are the barriers to reaching agreement? What are the hard issues we need to discuss? And you need to frame up what are the issues that really are resolvable? And what issues are such issues of such deep principle that you'll never get anywhere? And with that, you engage in a back and forth and you begin to resolve those issues. And in the course of that, people listen differently. In many cases, invent, as Monica said, creative new answers. Sometimes it's a compromise of existing ideas. But in many cases, like our education project, the ideas really were out of the box and they were unifying because people saw a way to solve the problem that met the needs of everybody at the table. That's fascinating. Thank you for that insight, Rob. And so, Monica, you're currently leading the Initiative on Digital Disinformation. So what does that project involve and what do you actually aim to achieve with it? Sure. And I can maybe start with just a brief overview of digital disinformation and what is the problem and why it matters. So we're all pretty aware of how unprecedented the power of the Internet is to connect and inform people at the same time social media and network technologies are being leveraged to amplify disinformation. So deliberately misleading or false information that harms our society, it harms our democracy and everyday lives. And so disinformation and also misinformation and other forms of media manipulation, they shape these harmful narratives that mislead and polarize the public. They sow disruption, they exacerbate distrust, not only in institutions, but within and between communities and ourselves most fundamentally. And this has the potential to undermine 
elections, public health, national security, business, and of course, deception and manipulation of information and content predate the internet, but the acceleration and scale and reach are so much greater on the web. So these bad actors are targeting people and communities based on their race, their gender, their age, politics, or other demographics, trying to influence their mindsets and behaviors. You also have institutions such as the platforms and government and media feeding the cycle of disinformation and division for profit or votes or clicks, and vulnerable audiences consume it. You also have the rise in hyperpartisan reporting and local news deserts. This further fuels the problem. Uh, and then you also have emergent artificial intelligence, such as deep fakes or ephemeral content, such as live streams or Instagram stories or audio chats on Clubhouse that make it harder to detect and address disinformation. So this is how we're thinking about the problem and why it's so important and how it's impacting all different layers in society. So why is Convergence choosing to take this on? As I outlined, these causes are so complex, difficult to disentangle. The solutions are hard to scale due to ideological and sectoral differences. And there are also several offline historical and structural roots that further convolute the problem. And that's why it actually makes what makes it such a fitting problem for convergence to take on with our process. So what we're trying to do here is bring together diverse sectors. So industry actors like the tech platforms, advertising, media, academia, civil society, health care and medical professionals, professionals, faith-based leaders, psychologists, and also communities for a very intensive year-long facilitated dialogue. We'll be exploring people-centered solutions that mitigate disinformation and its impact and strengthen pro-social and pro-civic discourse. And together, we hope that participants will build trust learn to understand each other's perspectives and values, and arrive at either new fresh solutions to this issue that move us past places where we've been stuck in divisiveness and failure to coordinate, or maybe this uniquely configured group will generate fresh a fresh set of solutions just because these people never came together to work in such a collaborative environment before. So I'll pause there. Um, oh, I forgot the second half of your question. What do we aim to achieve? I would say... There are three things, I think. One, impact, and this ranges from a deeply informed understanding of the challenges involved, but also this could take on a wide variety of formats. So we could potentially organize private action coalitions. Maybe there are policies, ideally policies that are more nuanced and content agnostic that we get onto the congressional record. These could be education research initiatives or community engagement and public programming. The beauty of the convergence process is we don't commit to any of these upfront. These are all, this is the menu of options we bring the group together to explore. A second impact, especially for this project, is grassroots engagement and impact. So how do we enlist not only national leaders and experts, but also local leaders and everyday citizens? It's a model we're testing now in partnership with three other bridge building organizations, Civic Genius, Interfaith America, and More in Common. Very excited about this model. And then lastly, I would love if this project opened the conversation into a convergence taking on related tech and society issues. So for example, privacy or digital inclusion and having a broader portfolio of work that inspires society to demand better technology and a better world. No, that's really fascinating, honestly. And I think that one of the things that I find really interesting about this project and this type of project is when people think about mediation or facilitation or bringing people together, they don't necessarily think about this tech space, right, or disinformation space. But of course, 
it's in exactly these kind of spaces that we start to see a lot more social conflict as you highlighted yourself as far as the reach of the web and, and what have you. So it's really interesting to sort of type of project being tackled with really a dialogue and bridge building approach. So good job guys, like fantastic initiative there. And, but what are some of the, the key challenges that you do face when applying a model such as this? And how can they be addressed? Monica, did you want to take us away? Sure, I can kick us off for sure. So I think some of the challenges are specific to the topic, but some of them pertain to bridge building and consensus building more broadly. So for example, um, in general, a lot of these intractable problems are ill-defined or there is disagreement about how they should be defined, characterized by technical complexity and scientific uncertainty. So for example, on disinformation, there's some academic consensus on definitions, but there's disagreement about what is considered false. Beyond that, there's disagreement about how do we know what is false and not false. So it's a bit of an epistemological crisis. And then some people disagree on to what extent it is a problem. And then people disagree on how to solve it. So you have people talking about, okay, should government take more of a role in mitigating disinformation? But then there are concerns that it trickles down to incentivize over-moderation or censorship. Historically, it's been considered mis- or disinformation to say that the AIDS epidemic was real or systemic racism was real. On the other hand, you have the tech platforms. And yeah, it's true that there is an element of the business model and the algorithms and how they operate that make them ideal for manipulation and abuse. And there's a lot of complexity to content moderation and making it scale. But there are others who are worried about if we want a future of free speech, do, is it a future where um, the richest people on earth can purchase the platform that millions of people do depend on for their work or for communication outside the US, for example, this is very, like Facebook is basically the internet on a, in, in a continent like Africa, and then change the rules to their liking. So these are some of the tensions that we're grappling with. I would also say another challenge is the diplomacy and facilitation required to run this process effectively. People need to talk and they need to listen. And when several people are involved, especially if they don't know each other or they really strongly disagree, you need to get the talking, listening and decision-making sequence in order. And that's why facilitation and mediation are such, such important and such difficult skills to acquire. And I have so much respect for a lot of the facilitators that we engage in this work. And it's a skill I'm hoping to hone myself. And then lastly, and this is a challenge that I really care about, it's the challenge of disparity of power and resources and dealing with some of these problems and of doing consensus building within a broader world that many people consider to be unjust. So it's often hard to do negotiation and collaboration when there is not a balance of power yet. Sometimes outside inequalities are reflected inside our groups. And even when you make internal decisions that are equal, sometimes it's hard to implement those in the outside world. And this is very much underscored with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the killings of Black Americans by police, even the recent leak of the Roe v. Wade decision. So to me, it's a big question. How do we engage in consensus building and mediation without risking the duplication and reification of power imbalances that exist outside our dialogues? And how do we embed guardrails and rules and values and norms into the process so that it's a very important and crucial complement to other processes like activism and philanthropy on the path to addressing some of these intractable problems? So those are probably my type of top of mind challenges. But I am really curious to hear from Rob as he's been in this space so much longer than I have. 
Sure, I can jump in. and I'll try to speak a little more generically about this is very difficult work. It's challenging work. We start out with who the heck's convergence and who are you to pull us together? And what do you know about the topic that you're doing? So we now have a track record to point to where it's the methodology that works. But so, you know, most people don't think in these terms that they're going to sit down with their enemies or their adversaries or the people they disagree with or do it comfortably. They're used to showing up someplace, having debate then leaving, and then people summarize, where's where their differences lay? So this notion of skillful facilitation, building relationships of trust is pretty unique and different. And we perhaps later talk more about what the vision might be if we could create a cultural change for more and more people understand how to do this. It's not rocket science, but it requires great seriousness of purpose and great character to be able to hold a safe place for everyone to talk to each other and for us to maintain our neutrality. So it doesn't look like we come in with any preconceived notions, because if we do, then the trust is broken. So we want everyone to feel that they can be with us. And there are, so the second next question is, who do you invite? And my view has always been the widest possible range of groups. That makes it more difficult to get consensus, but the consensus is more powerful to the extent the legs of the stool are wider. But I need to say in the last few years, especially, it's become more difficult to figure out who to invite to in the room. And while I still believe everybody, the broadest spectrum of people in the United States and elsewhere should be brought in, you have to have certain codes of people willing to look at facts and be honest about things. And there's certain questions about whether who is being honest and who's not, and then who is it that makes that judgment to begin with. So I'd rather be inclusive. And I also think a certain magic happens in the room as people talk to each other and hear each other. Something changes inside of them. They listen differently. They're just not there to debate most people in the room become friends with each other, although there are some notable exceptions. And with that, when your heart opens up a bit, I think your mind opens up and you can learn from it. And you can learn from each other and you can often find common ground. And then I think one of the largest challenges, and Monica touched on this beautifully, and I should have elaborated in my earlier answer, one of the biggest challenges, even if people in the room go through some transformation, how does it get translated out? Can they deliver their own organizations? And are they willing then to step in and fight for what they've come up with? At times, the politics are difficult, and or they may suffer for having sat with the enemy. There's some people we haven't been able to be public about the participation of some people. It's been so sensitive when they're sitting with enemies. But we try to get people in the room, and in that moment, they're in the room, and they see each other, and they hear each other, then the trust does develop. I also agree. I think there are tremendous issues about power dynamics. I think our job at Convergence isn't to correct the power dynamics in the society, but we don't want to add to the continuing inequalities. And to the extent we can help uh, soften those, I think it's a really good idea. So we try to create that balance, and we also try to create great equality in the room. So the quality of what you have to say gets listened to by everybody, and it's not a matter of kowtowing to different people. On the other hand, some people in the room have more capacity to deliver impacts and that needs to be taken into account. Not everyone in the room has equal capacity to put resources in. You know, in some of our projects, we've had foundation heads at the table. And man, that was really helpful. <laughs> Get them bought in because then they fund other people and projects going forward. There are people who have constituencies or ability to affect politics more than other people. So while everyone's voice in the room should be equal, I think we, some, like everyone else, we have to adjust to the fact that there are inequalities of power. But I think we do everything we can to democratize the process and bring in all the voices that need to be heard. So it's a big deal. It's a difficult thing to do. We've never done it perfectly. 
On the other hand, I'd also say this, at a time when so much of the world is ascribing motives to each other and is angry with each other, and can't believe they'd even talk to people on the other side, just getting them to talk to each other, have those barriers come down, have people see each other as full human beings. That's a big step toward us having a more civil world and civil society. And while that alone isn't sufficient for our goals, I think it's an important achievement if we start to get people talking to each other and in many ways lower the temperature of the toxic polarization we all are upset about these days. Well, it sounds like a very delicate balancing act for sure, but you've also painted a very inspirational picture. So thank you for that sort of morning buzz. And so I'm going to ask you then, so if you had an unlimited budget to do this kind of work, what would be your dream project? And I'll go to Monica first. Thanks, Laura May. I'm very excited by this question because I love imagining all the issues that it would be great for us to resolve. I hope it's okay if I mention a few (laughs) and then Rob can riff off that. I think it would be unsurprising if I mentioned climate change and working to increase biodiversity in wilderness. I think this is an existential issue and a first order one. It puts a strain and impacts the well-being of entire communities and addressing climate change can positively affect many of the other issues that we're probably thinking about and working on. So that's one. Another, and this is poorly the like poorly scoped right now because it's so broad, but I'll say it anyway. And it's socioeconomic inequity or the concentration of wealth. And even if you look at this within the scope of um, tech and society problems or digital disinformation that, you know, the richest person in the world right now, Jeff Bezos, or at least on the Forbes 400 list, he owns the Washington Post. Elon Musk, the second richest person, may soon close the deal and own Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg is the third richest one and he owns Facebook. And then the top 10, I think, are rounded out by people who started Google and Microsoft that own Bloomberg. And so you see that insofar as a lot of the increasing social division and polarized political rhetoric are attributed to be products of these spaces. There's also something to be said for the fact that income inequality has returned to the pre-Great Depression levels, and there's something rooted in these fundamental social and economic conditions in our society. Another first order issue I would love Convergence to expand on, and we've already done a lot of great work on economic mobility and well-being, so it'd be cool to see this bubble up into a broader portfolio that takes on this issue. And then maybe the last two would be the refugee crisis, just because 70 million people are affected by this, I think. 70 million are forced from their homes, maybe 30 million are refugees, and then over half of those people are under 18. And it's come to the forefront, especially with the situation in Ukraine, but elsewhere, it's been a huge issue for years too, in Syria or Afghanistan. And then the last one would probably be um, how to create a sustainable food system that tackles hunger and food insecurity. I'm personally invested in this because I would love a system that does not inflict mass suffering on animals and does not exploit farmers, but even more broadly, just food insecurity is such a stubborn issue to resolve. To resolve. And I read a very interesting survey recently where it's one of the top concerns um, for Gen Z. They believe poverty and hunger are essential matters to address and older generations actually rate it lower on the social issues list. And I would love to take on an issue that will be top of mind for the generations to come. So those are some of the things that are very top of mind for me. And I'm super curious to see if Rob, if you, if any of those are particularly inspiring to you, or if you have your own thoughts. 
Good segue, Monica. So yeah, I love all those. And some of them have been on our parking lot for a while. It's a matter of time and resources. But now that Laura has offered us all the money we could possibly need, we can probably just do all of them. But in all seriousness, it takes tremendous energy and research to organize these and get them done well. But sure, climate change would be huge. And there's some, we're looking into it a bit. US-China relations, I would add to that. It's just some way to deal with both the economic and human rights issues there. I was on a call before I went into this field, I ran a national anti-hunger organization. And I'm hearing about the dislocations from Russia and Ukraine and the disruption of wheat supplies and increases in world hunger that are ensuing. And up to now, Convergence has mainly focused on domestic issues. That's how we were formed. There was enough to be done and more manageable, but that would be something to look into to what extent can we, either ourselves or working in partnership with people around the world, and Laura, you might be a good resource on this, take the methodology out to deal with more international issues, which are big. We can't go encroaching on the roles of government who have legitimate roles of diplomacy and power and authority, but there may be complementary things we can do. I'd also say this, there are dozens of issues we could take on. Immigration, U.S. immigration issues have been on our list for a long time. And I'm thrilled we're doing economic mobility issues, and that's a huge, important thing. And there's more work to be done on healthcare, particularly on the cost of healthcare in this country. One of the things that I'm focusing on, I think if I had unlimited resources, I would put money into this, is that this isn't only about convergence. This is about, there's a methodology here that so many other people have employed, maybe not exactly what we've done, but employed and they get this. There are mediators around the world who understand this in their bones. Frankly, I think almost every therapist in the world understands that this is how you solve problems. No one person is always right, no one wrong. You get people to talk to each other and you communicate and you understand the people's feelings and their thoughts and their fears and their concerns. So one of the big plays I would make is to help, if you will, inculcate, train, expose people this way of thinking, give them examples, give them experiences so that there are hundreds of organizations doing the kind of work we do around the world who generate solution after solution so that we actually over time achieve a culture change where people begin to look at collaboration as a first resort rather than a last resort and see that it's not soft, it's not naive, it's very hard-nosed, but it's about understanding that you can tap human potential, avoid unnecessary suffering, and actually avoid unnecessary conflict. Some conflict is necessary and appropriate, it may be irreconcilable. But my experience has been, and this is directly from working for three congressional committees on a bipartisan basis, that most people can find large areas of agreement, even though they disagree on many things, and that there's not really a skillful means by which people normally partake in a process where they can actually hear each other out and understand it all that underneath it all, they may not be as quite as different as they thought they were. And many times they actually want the same things, disagree on how to get there, but with careful and patient exploration can often tease out ideas that actually create winners for, all, for everybody. So that would be the bigger vision. How do we create a groundswell and a, a cultural transformation toward this mindset and more and more people adopting this approach as a first resort to resolve problems when they have the time and energy and resources to do so? I love the, I don't know if it was intentional or inadvertent, the plug for therapy, and maybe there's some collaboration here between the therapists of the world and the mediators and facilitators and bridge builders of the world. <laughs> I'm of that mind. It seems to me 
and this is a big idea for someone to pursue that just leaders, many of many, maybe not all, but they're preaching the golden rule every day. And for some reason, people think that the golden rule maybe applies to how you treat your kids and your family and your friends, but it doesn't apply in the world of policy or politics. But of course it should, and it works that way. So I think that, and so I do think that religious leaders, therapists, mediators, many people also just naturally resonate with this. There's a whole, I think, reservoir of people who, if they understood the power of this work, could get behind it, and we could, and they could hasten the adoption of these ideas into the world. And I think a lot more problems would be solved, and a lot more effectively, in a way that would be much more durable than many of the fixes we get that leave people spoiling for a fight afterward. And that's certainly true in the Roe versus Wade situation in the United States. That many people felt um, that it certainly years ago the decision that a lot of other people applaud maybe went too far too fast and people weren't ready for it. So it left people really angry. And now other countries are moving forward to make changes that I think maybe reflect the broader will of the public. So I don't, I'm not an expert on that. I don't mean to say too much about that, but I do think there are all sorts of people we could tap into worldwide whose sensibilities agree with this and they are not aware that this can be applied into the world of policy and politics. This is a absolutely wonderful response. So thank you, Rob, and thank you, Monica. And so just a final question then. So what advice would you offer others wanting to do this kind of work? I'll hazard a quick answer. We can both think about it a bit. First of all, I'd say this, that this mindset that we're recommending and these approaches can apply in so many settings. You don't have to be taken on big public policy issues. If you're a leader of a school board, if you're a leader of a church or synagogue, if you're an academic dean, if you're a business leader, a union leader, you can decide to, whether you're going to be a collaborative, inclusive problem solver to bring all the voices in and try to deal with it. Or you can try to do it more on a top-down basis. And, and look, there's room for both. And at times you just have to do that, even running convergence for many years. It wasn't a democracy. I had to make decisions. Otherwise, we could be paralyzed. You could debate everything endlessly. But I think that's really a big thing, is that people can think about their own lives and begin to identify these principles of collaborative problem solving and apply them even at their family levels and their community levels. It may not help you with the Thanksgiving dinner debates you need to have. And there are groups out there who can help you do better direct communications. But when it comes to problem solving, everybody's got issues that need to be dealt with. And I think the important place to start is to get interested in, hey, maybe there's another bet a better way to doing this than me just fighting and arguing and trying to win the argument or put down the other person. And then people can find their way to apply it as they wish. And I especially love to engage people who I say has have convening power. So people who have some ability to say, yeah, this is a problem I have to deal with. Let me help bring people together, whether it's a local mayor, as I said, a school board, a county council, even an academic dean and so on, philanthropic institutions. They all can suggest to people they need to talk to each other. And we have leaders who adapt or adopt, you know, what, I, what people call a mediative, a facilitative leadership style. Then this can really grow exponentially. That's so interesting to hear, Rob. When I think on the question on advice, I think maybe two things come to mind for me, both of which I'm actively working to practice. 
as someone who recently entered the space. And one would be to engage to listen rather than speak, hold space, and be comfortable with silence. I tend to skew very solutions oriented. So starting from the empathetic listening space, it's a skill that I've been honing. And then a second piece of advice would probably pertain to reflection and this on two levels. So uh, developing an internal awareness of your own identity and role as a facilitator or director or mediator and where you sit in relation to the conflict you're working to resolve and the balance of power amongst parties so that you can enable these diverse groups of people to take on interrelated issues, not just the subject matter, so in my case, disinformation, but also other issues that interrelate to that, so it might be race and gender. And the second uh, thing to reflect on, I think, would be on what are we learning in our work and what the broader bridge building field is calling for more broadly, and then what society is demanding of us more broadly. And I think a little bit of humility is important here, because sometimes it means, yes, we need to step up to the plate and tackle these truly intractable issues from the space of negotiation and mediation. And sometimes it means recognizing that it may or may not be the best approach or it's not the first approach. Maybe it plays a secondary complementary role. And I fully believe it should be in the menu of options and a repertoire of things to pursue. But I think a little bit of reflection just to make sure you know where you stand always helps. Wonderful. Both you've given me a lot of inspiration this morning and hopefully also our listeners some inspiration. So thank you for painting this picture of a world where we can all build bridges and collaborate and giving us some insight into how we can actually get to that world as well. So for those who are interested in checking out Convergence's projects and reports, you can visit convergencepolicy.org. Thank you so much again, both to Rob and Monica for joining me today. And until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Shipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.